Today's episode of The Watch is brought to you by Mack Weldon. Whatever you're wearing right now, Mack Weldon is better. Mack Weldon is a men's essentials brand that believes in smart design, premium fabrics, and simple shopping. I cannot tell you how much I enjoy copying basics for my wardrobe from Mack Weldon from their site. I love their t-shirts. I love their underwear. We've been talking about Mack Weldon forever. I love their their t-shirts specifically are, are great. You can put them underneath a dress shirt. You can wear them just out and about casual. They're just fantastic fitting shirts. I don't know what else to say. They even have a line of silver underwear and shirts that are naturally antimicrobial, which means they eliminate odor. They want you to be comfortable. So if you don't like your first pair, you can keep it and they will still refund you. No questions asked. To see what I'm talking about, go to MacWeldon.com and get 20% off using promo code WATCH. Hey guys, thank you for listening to The Watch. This is Chris. Andy was calling in today and we talked about the United States of Donald Glover. What a time to be alive. This guy is really doing it all pretty much in every possible way that you could do it is as a pop culture figure in 2018. And Andy and I talked about his performance on Saturday Night Live over the weekend, his new song, This Is America, Atlanta season two, his upcoming performance in Solo, which he has been on the press tour for. So a lot of Donald Glover. And then we talked about last night's episode of Barry, which I thought was maybe the best episode of the season, so of the show. Uh, And we had a really interesting discussion about Barry and a little bit of Killing Eve. We're going to talk more about Killing Eve on Thursday in depth, and we'll probably get into some Westworld on Thursday as well. The second half of the pod, I actually did an interview with Elias from the band Ice Age. They've put out a record called Beyondless on Matador. It is It is my favorite album of the year, I think. It is a glorious, glorious record. They keep getting better and better. I'll talk a little bit about that later in the podcast, but stick around for that interview if you're a fan of Ice Age or you're curious. Before we get started, a couple of things that you should check out on the Ringer.com and the Ringer Podcast Network and the Ringer videos. You should be checking out David Shoemaker every week with a variety of guests. It's Westworld, The Recapables. It keeps you up to date on everything that's happening with the Delos crew, as well as some theories about what might be happening in future episodes. It's really good. It's a, it's basically like, I didn't understand Westworld last night or I think I understand Westworld last night. Please explain it to me. Shoemaker's doing incredible work on that. We also have updated our 50 superheroes movies list. Uh, we did this a while back, but have updated it to include Avengers, Infinity War, and Black Panther. So that is definitely worth checking out. And there's a bunch of good stuff on the ringer this week for NBA playoffs. Rob Harvilla just wrote about Childish Gambino from the weekend. So, Plenty of stuff to read on The Ringer, plenty of stuff to listen to. Keep checking out that Dave Chang show, which has just got, it's got a pretty pretty awesome one coming, uh, which I, I can't reveal who's on it, but you'll want to subscribe to the Dave Chang show. So let's just get into this episode of The Watch now. I need sports to have to clear the room. Stand up and walk now. now. Hello and welcome to The Watch. My name is Chris Ryan. I am an editor at TheRinger.com and joining me on the other line in a gender-swapped version of Macbeth, it's Andy Greenwald! Yes, I ha- that's where I had my money. I had my money on the gender-swapped Macbeth joke. <laughs> oh, Andy, that's a, ge- that's a reference to Barry, a little show on the Home Box yep. Office Network that we'll be talking about in a little bit. Uh, Andy is on the phone today uh, within the confines of the greater Los Angeles area. Not that I'm trying to give any tips to kidnappers, um, but we are going to do this old school like we used to when we were bi-coastal and Andy's uh, calling in today. What's up, man? How you doing? I'd like to apologize to all the fidelity heads out there. I feel like there are people <laughs> who really started listening to our podcast when the, when our voices became like really do, like We might have lost Steve Albini balanced. today. Yeah. That's what I'm worried about. And so I apologize to everyone. Um, I don't like to bring a, you know, I was out on Thursday, and so I don't like to come all the way back all at once. It's like the you know, the goldfish in the plastic bag theory of podcasting with you. So Thursday, I'll be back in, in the flesh. Yeah, but so this was, it was too much. Donald Glover is just making a lot of things happen right now. So we're going to talk about him for a little while today. We'll talk about Atlanta. We're going to talk about his SNL appearance, and we're going to talk about Solo and his new music that he just put out over the weekend. And then we're also going to spend a little time talking about Barry. The other half of this podcast will be my conversation with Ice Age, this incredible uh, Danish band. They have a new record out on Matador called Beyondless, which is my favorite album of the year. Um, I don't know if it's your bag, per se. Can I say, I just want to commend you because 
you, first of all, you're my friend. You surprised me and impressed me daily. <laughs> but I did not know you could do an entire interview in Danish. Yeah. I mean, I just did not know that was in your wheelhouse. I'm fluent I know in Danish. That you Didn't I tell you that? Yeah. It's like, the, it's such I, a useful language. I knew you had dined at Noma many times and that you were really into like sea buckthorn as an ingredient, but I didn't know you could speak it. So bravo to you. Yeah, it's my, it's my interview with Elias uh, from Ice Age will be later in this pod. And I definitely recommend everybody check out Beyondless. But we obviously have talked before, Andy, about um, a lot about Atlanta, some about Donald Glover. And the last time we really spoke about him in depth, we've mentioned Atlanta a couple of times. But the last time we spoke really in depth about him as a as a celebrity, as a personality, as an actor, and as 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 someone who is intriguing us is when the New Yorker profile of him ran sort of at the beginning of the season of the second season of Atlanta, and it was a, I think a, I would say a hotly debated profile um, by Tad Friend, and it positioned Glover, I think. I'll use broadly the term enigmatic. He is an enigmatic figure who seemed to have a very complicated relationship uh, with his own celebrity, with television, with the television network that was putting out his television show, uh, and expectations of him as an artist. And it kind of seemed like he was going through this wandering desert prophet phase. There's one scene in the New Yorker uh, article where he's like dangling his sneaker over a fire pit at some, at some like house in the hills or something. And there's a lot of like debate about delivering a product that is, uh, you know, consumable by a mass audience versus the thing that he wants to make. And it's a fascinating, fascinating piece, whether or not uh, everybody involved in the piece or quoted in the piece is necessarily uh, happy with how they were presented. And the now we get to this point, beginning of May, just a few short weeks before the release of Solo, the, uh, the Han Solo anthology movie that uh, Glover is co-starring in and playing Lando Calrissian. And By about the way, a- can I just jump in yeah. and say, if the sequel to Solo isn't called Duo, starring Lando and Han, what are we even doing? I don't know. What are we doing? Well, here's the thing. That kind of idea sounds like the kind of thing that Donald Glover might pitch because about two or two weeks ago, they started releasing these little featurettes, these little making of featurettes for Solo to start presenting them. And, you know, initially I was kind of like, I wonder if Glover's, you know, going to show up for, to, to do the, the sales pitch on this movie because there was also rumors that this movie was bad or that this movie was, you know, had a lot of trouble. And I clicked on the YouTube video of one of these making ofs. The first person I see is fucking Donald Glover being like, welcome to the Millennium Falcon. I want to show you guys around. And I was like, oh my God, this is not the dude in the New Yorker profile. And then you see him on SNL this week. And he is, here's my theory, basically. He does an incredible job in SNL this week, selling the show, doing like mm-hmm. a, like the, the five-tool player. He's out there singing. Mm-hmm. He's out there rapping. He's out there acting his ass off. And I feel like somewhere in between when that first se- the second season of Atlanta debuted and the New Yorker profile came out, and now, he must have had some revelation about how the next five to 20 years of his life were going to go, depending on how things broke. And I almost imagine, like, I don't know, like, can you imagine a Bob Iger phone call somewhere in there? That was just like, hey, man, like, like th- th- you could be a huge, 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 huge star for the next 20 years, or, or you, you cannot be, and this is how it, this is how the game has to go if you want to be. Now, difficult Glover is only a couple of years old. Like before that, like he was just definitely a dude who wrote for Thirty Rock and was in Community and stuff. But this has been a fascinating short-term personality transplant because I feel like at a moment when we kind of lack a lot of stars like him in some ways, he is like stepped into that void and he has stepped up and his magnetism is just ap- absolutely palpable. Am I, am I off on my read of this whole situation? I think that you are not off. I think that that might be a slightly more cynical read on it, but not unjustified. I mean, I, I think the, the, the headline here is that he is the star we've been looking for. And the subhead is it hasn't been the easiest path to get here. And he hasn't always accepted it or and he has pushed back against it. The last time we talked about it in relationship to the New Yorker profile, we also talked about um, Ringer colleague Rob Harvilla's really good piece about coming to terms with 
Donald Glover's music as Childish Gambino. And I think the takeaway from a lot of that was this is a guy who has, in a way that is very specific to our era, has come of age very much in public. He has been famous for a while. He has been trying to be a five-tool player for a while. He has been learning and struggling and adapting and growing in public for a while. And that can go super badly. Mm -hmm. And the the highway of celebrities littered with uh, the, the, the burnout wrecks of the cars that people could yeah, not some, make. Somewhere Kanye West is flying in an electric plane over our well, heads, designing housing down. communities. Yeah. This guy has been able to do it, and I think part of the charm and the allure has been the way he has put it together piecemeal. You know, I think that in a previous generation, maybe even one with the baggage that we carry with us, to have put out records as, I'm just going to say it, as not good as the early Childish Gambino records, would maybe be disqualifying on some level to be considered this transform transformational artist. You know, I think you and I still come from a place where we are into people struggling in the dark, and then when the spotlight clicks on, they're ready for it. This guy has been moving towards something for quite some time. What we're seeing now, I think, is someone who is able to synthesize all the different aspects of himself. I mean, there's still a prickly Donald. Um, the Deadpool show he and his brother were doing for FXX yeah. crashed and burned. We don't know why, but we know we did see the very funny uh, fake script that he leaked, um, which gave a sense probably as to maybe why that wasn't the best corporate fit. You know, that he could have said, welcome to the Millennium Falcon for Deadpool. I don't know what the equivalent of that is. Um, and made, you know, a considerable amount of money for a long time and had his uh, on-ramp to the Marvel Universe, too. That didn't work out. So he, there is still some struggling here. But what's truly amazing about it is, to me, um, it's not just watching the journey. It's watching him, I think, come to terms not just with his enormous talent, but specifically what his talent is for. Because he's not the best actor in the world. He is not the best rapper in the world. I don't think he's saying he is. But what he is is a supernova of synthesis. Yes. His crew, which I think is called Royalty, and that's him and his brother, and uh, you know the phenomenal director Hiro Murai, and other writers on the show, Stephanie Robinson, the people that he likes to work with, he has found the people who make him comfortable, who challenge him and push him. Remember that Atlanta, which we haven't even gotten to yet, is still so above and beyond the best show on television. It's just the best. It yeah, is it's better in, than it anything is in a, else. It, we're going to talk close. about that, but it's in a completely other category. This is a show that is Donald Glover's auteur star show, and there are whole episodes in which he doesn't appear. And that's a regular occurrence. I don't have the numbers of the 19 episodes that exist, but there are at least three, four, five Especially in which he's season. not in it as an actor. Yeah. Or in which including he plays, this last week's episode. In which, or episodes in which he is, if you didn't know who he was, you would think he was the fourth, fourth name on the list. Fourth name on the show. Exactly. He's just reacting in the background. So there, for, for someone who is the star we, we're, we've been promised, he is remarkably democratic in his approach. And I think that's also pretty inspiring. So to see him, I mean, let, let's talk about SNL for a minute. Like, he elevated everything he was a part of on the show. He gave the show that third rail of electricity that suddenly made it feel relevant. It made it feel sparky. It made it feel fun. Um, the Friendos video is incredible. Yeah. It's hilarious. A Kanye place. But the Kanye, the yeah. Kanye place sketch is not only is it so funny, but it's the kind of thing where you could imagine that being pitched on a week when he wasn't hosting. He's not, he's nominally the star of the sketch, but he's really just sort of driving the joke forward. His reaction to things, the meta, the meta aspect of it, of him being a rapper in the world who was retweeted by Kanye this weekend, making that joke. I mean, it, 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 uh, it gives a spark to everything around it. And I think that that's a very unique kind of stardom and talent to be able to um, not just be lit up yourself, but to ignite everyone else around. Yeah. And I think that you're, you're right to say, and I, I'm not even, I'm not backtracking as much as like that. That was like my opening sort of bit about him is pretty hypothetical. Like it, I definitely think there's been a change in his public persona in the last three mm -hmm. or four weeks versus his what it was at the beginning of Atlanta Robin season. But I think to not put too fine a point on it, but to borrow the name of his song, This Is America, This Is America and our successes are often defined by our failures. And our, our we are always looking for that narrative arc in our public figures. How are you overcoming something to be this? And maybe that's like, I'm just so trained to do that that I looked at, well, he was sort of, 
in a weirder place with his relationship to celebrity and Hollywood and fame six, three, four, five, six months ago. And now he's like, I'm ready to go for it. And I think it's unfair. It's it's unfair to be like, he's the person we need now at that Kanye has abandoned us for MAGA hats. But it, it is, it's inevitable. And he's not, you know, when you watch something like the video for This Is America, it has that feeling of yeah. everything that you ever wanted from a Kanye song, maybe, you know, everything you, it, it has that synthesis that you're, you're talking about where it's like, there is this void right now for this. And even though, you know, you have artists who are speaking truth to power all the time, there was something about the, the timing of everything that's happening with this run of Atlanta, with the SNL appearance. He had been kind of like, uh, this is the last Childish Gambino music I'm going to put out as Childish Gambino. And I kind of thought, well, is this going to be sort of an experimental jag that you go on or whatever? But no, it's like, this is you taking the huge riot going on step up. I know that that last record had elements of that, but to be so confrontationally like clear about what your message is, it, it was just, and it, and, it, and here Mariah directed the video and it's a, it's probably the best music video I've seen in years. Um it's great. I yeah, mean, it's I mean, such a it, cool it, moment. It sparks. I mean, it's it, it's the most exciting video since probably since Beyonce's formation video a few years ago. Yeah. Um, I, I do want to talk about the video. I think the the one thing I'll say, the parentheses I'll put around the idea of Star Wars is that it, you know, Star Wars does have this totemic importance for people. I mean, he's a little younger than us, but generationally for people. And he's talked about what those movies meant to him. He got father, to deal yeah. with his dad. Yeah. And, um, so there is, there's a version of this where just being able to play in that universe, what it means to him, what it means to his family, and what it potentially means to his kids who are very young. That's why he's going to give you a tour of the spaceship with a big smile on his face. But all of this, I think, should be considered um, in the context of the video, because the video is not just commenting on um, America's obsession with entertainment and obsession with guns and our ability to block out one constantly in service of the other. It's also, I think, very much a comment on who he feels he is in the world. Because remember, he is essentially, he's shirtless and dancing, but he is giving us a tour of the Millennium Falcon for half of the video while horrific violence happens all around him. And at the end of the video, when he is running as if being pursued by police or by something far worse, um, is a reflection, I think, of how he often feels. Mm -hmm. or, well, I don't want to prescribe, but, you know, I don't know how he feels, but I think that his, his work and he, has, in other ways, have communicated that to us and what it means to be a black man in the entertainment world or to be succeeding, you know. And so allowing us into that, allowing us a window into that dichotomy of, like, how, how this feels to be applauded and celebrated while also being essentially hated, feared, and hunted. I mean, he was even there in the monologue when he said, um, you know, I was on a show called Community, and I'm in Solo. And if you're and if you're black, I do Atlanta, and I did Redbone. Right. Um, right. He, he's walking that line, and I, it, sometimes it can be frustrating when you feel like an artist that you're really into is diverging away from the thing that you love by about them to the things that they love. Uh, and I, I think even before all this um, red pill stuff came up, that was a latent frustration with some Kanye fans, where you're just like, man, you're so good. At making music and producing music, and God, God knows this is like one of the central problems for Kanye is that he feels like people are always telling him what he can and can't do or think. Uh, but you know, I I have no need for Yeezy clothing, and I have no need for Yeezy uh, community planning. You know, like it's it's fine that that's like his dream in life, but you often feel like the you know diversify your portfolio to borrow a phrase from Wu Tang Financial can sometimes ruin artists because they just get too they get too spread thin. And there's something about what's happening right now with Glover where he seems to be smashing on all quadrants at once. Yes. It's such a high level. It, it is actually the perfect performance of pop culture figure in the 20 of, of in 2018. Like if you were going to do yeah, it, I, you couldn't I, I do agree. it any better than what he's doing. But I also agree because what he's doing and what seems to be one of the central tenets of all the art that he makes is showing um Showing, you know, showing in a way that I, I don't even want to say it's a generous way. It's just in a because that would suggest much more intention behind it. What he's what he's doing is just illustrating the complexity and totality of black existence. And one of the most brilliant things about Atlanta is the way it swings high and it swings low and it swings super mundane. And in that mundanity, you know, we talked about the episode where Van um, goes to the Drake party. And you know, the last time we saw her, she was speaking very eloquently about herself and her needs. And in this episode, she's, you know, she's basically setting up Instagram thirst traps. You know, she is both. Um, Alfred is both, 
um, a, you know, a, a guy who wants to succeed and perform and a guy who's psychologically damaged by the life that he's lived and by losing his mother. We see all of it in every episode. And the thing about the season of Atlanta is it just feels that life imbues every frame of it. And it's so thrilling and engaging and uplifting and surprising, even in moments that are, you know, in an episode that is otherwise isn't one of the very best episodes. But what's run through this season, you just absolutely, um, and, and I don't know if it's Robin's season, but there's this, there's a deep, deep sense of fear and disquiet at the heart of it. You know, and I think a lot of that has come from, um, from Alfred's journey and just how he keeps getting robbed, you know, so yeah. he keeps getting, his life is in danger. And I, it's hard to remember. It, it makes me feel some of the, it makes me feel viscerally some of the things that like a ta Coates essay does when he's just talking about the role of the black body in the world and in America, his show is doing this. This is a 30 minute show. They don't even bury episodes are longer than Atlanta episodes yeah. on the average. The- and, and, and art is funny. And yet that feeling is being promoted too. So it's it's amazing. Um, it's it's just amazing what is being given to us on a weekly basis at this moment by this one guy and his team. I I've I keep trying to put together my thoughts on this season because in some ways it's these little these little vignettes, and yet I feel like at the end it's going to build towards something that we can really break down in the finale. But it makes me think of uh, yeah, you know, like that's a really interesting comparison to talk about the coats work. I it sometimes it makes me think of Oh Brother Where Art Thou. And these uh, mm-hmm. odysseys that people take, there's been a lot of journeys on this trip. They, you know, in Helen, in North of the Border, and Teddy Perkins, people are going out into the world and going on these kind of grotesque adventures. And, uh, you know, usually in the Odyssey story, it's because they're trying to get back home. I don't know where these guys are trying to get back to, but this is a show that's so routinely incredible that even, even moments like the D4L moment in North of the Border a couple weeks ago where you're just like, <laughs> yeah. this is just on television. This is just unbelievable that we're out. And like, they consistently hit those moments so frequently that you're almost like, it's like watching, uh, it's like watching LeBron where you're just like, oh yeah, I expect you to do that. I expect this every week, this level of performance. So in that way, it's just like, we should actually in the same way that with LeBron, we should be we should take a minute and appreciate the fact that this is happening because it doesn't happen all the time. Yeah. It did seem like everything lined up. And I think that this is just, just to put a, a cap on it. Like it is an example of a successful navigation of how we experience all of this to basically do make this run in these few weeks and months of having the show come back, of having that Deadpool thing happen, of navigating the press or lack of press, hitting Saturday Night Live, hitting the new music, having the video ready to pop the same night, uh, leading up to this big movie, and make it look like he's a Shibitani sibling. You know, like basically make it look like he's just he's just doing figure eights. Yeah. Because this way of doing things, to, to inspire the kind of conversation we're having, frankly, not that he's doing it this way, but basically that's how culture works now, where everything gets dumped, and then we talk about it, and, we're, and we say things like, boy, he really elevated the, the zeitgeist connection of Saturday Night Live. I mean, what are we even doing on some level? But he makes it look easy. So it's funny that even thinking back about the conversation we just had, we are both excited. And I think, um, as you said, appreciative, uh, we get to watch it, but we're also, I mean, we're grateful. We're grateful that there is someone who makes this giant, um, mess that is culture or American life in 2018, make it, um, artistry to it. Um, I feel like we're all looking for, we're all looking for patterns right now in the static and, and, and he's found a way to figure it out. Maybe not on such a large social scale, but definitely in terms of understanding what you can do within the framework of a more or less 30-minute show is Barry, which is, along with Killing Eve and Atlanta, probably one of the three best shows that's on right now, if you ask me. Um, And last night's episode, Loud, Fast, and Keep Going, was another one of the season highlights. I think you and I spoke really affectionately of episodes four and five, and we did so with Bill Hader and Henry Winkler when they were on The Watch a couple of weeks ago. But um, I think with a show like Barry, it's very easy to get carried away by some of the more darkly comic moments and the absurd moments that they have put forward, especially in the elevator pitch of the show in the first few episodes where it's like, this hitman is in an acting class. 
And I thought it was going to kind of be like, because that is repeatable, because you can have this fish out of water for a while, that they would stick with that for a while. And uh, as the season's gone on, they have committed more and more to this underworld that Barry comes from, to the world of violence and emotional anguish that Barry was kind of born out of, and the ways in which those world that world connects with this world of emotional anguish that is also acting apparently in the valley <laughs> and yeah. they have actually challenged what i thought was a relatively superficial premise they have actually gone there with this character in a way that feels earned and feels right and i thought last night's episode was harrowing <laughs> in a lot of ways and i think hater is giving an absolutely remarkable performance. And I know Allison is writing about this. If she has, I think she may have already put up, but if she, if not, she's, she's writing about this. Like, I, I think Hater is giving like an award worthy performance in this show. I think this show is really remarkable. Um, I, I think that there are moments when, and by the way, I agree with you. I think it's at this moment, it's one of the three best shows on TV. I still don't know if it's pulling it off. And I actually kind of mean that as a compliment. I think that its swing is so big and so much bigger than I realized because when the season started, because it is taking the consequences of everything that it introduces very seriously, much more seriously than some hour-long shows do, um, which is another sign, I think, that weirdly um, the half hour has uh, taken the mantle of emotional storytelling away from the hour, because while an hour show has so much plot to deal with. And so, you know, if this were an hour long show without a lot of the comedic elements, most likely there would be so many um, branches coming off of the tree that would be Barry's life for these people that we wouldn't have the moment just to spend with him, the moment to spend with him, the anguish, the highs and lows of emotion that kind of give you the full spectrum that, that they're going to be playing with. And then not just playing with, but then pushing us back and forth between in the course of a single episode. You know, there's a feeling in art when you realize that they're going to do something and then you just wonder if they have the guts to do it and then how they're going to pull it off. And of course, that's what happened with in last night's episode with um, Barry and Chris. It's a choice that I found myself fighting against in my head only because, as you said, I thought they were going to pull draw a lot of this out a little bit longer. Yeah. And I think that, and this is something that Allison, which her, her piece is, up, yeah. I, and was, I'm referring to it, um, talked about as well, that this good shows don't judge their characters. They just let them be. But by doing, by having Barry do what he did um, is a choice that you can't walk back. And so I guess I'm still processing how they're pulling off the, the, um, the highs and lows. That's I think really moments when it works point. and moments when it doesn't. Like, so that's interesting what you're saying, Andy. Do you think that the killing of Chris is actually, so you feel like that's a, you can't come back from that moment? Well, I just mean, the sh I think the show is going to, I think the show has shown us that what it takes seriously is, is a question like that. And I think that um, that's going to be, a, that's going to be part of this going forward. You know, I think that there is a darker and maybe even darker satirical uh, through line emerging as well, which is, what do you have to do or have done to have access to the emotional life necessary to become an actor? Um, which I have always found fascinating. And that ties into something else that, you know, that goes back. We've talked about, we talked about a relationship to Kanye, which is how troubled do you need to be to create art? You know, is that what you need to have done to be able to um, perform, expose feelings? I don't know. I mean, those are all, this is all fertile ground and yeah. makes the show incredibly worthwhile. Um, in many ways, I feel like the most successful moment of the season was the end of the previous episode when the car is gunning forward and there's silence and then gunshots. And it's just so, again, it's this weird mundanity of the world that they are existing in with, with the stakes that are just incomprehensible. I, I, I'm just impressed. And, I, and, I, and I'm very curious to see how they're going to land this season next week and then move forward. A bigger question I had for you about the show or that the show brought up with me, and, and, and Killing Eve too, because... By the way, these are two hitman or hit woman, let's say assassin shows that are on Sunday nights in America and both doing very well yeah. right now. There is an element of Barry that to me makes me feel like we are living in this post gilded age of television. And what I mean is there's a difference between um, 
how people who are don't have everything operate and people who have everything and maybe too much of everything. What I mean is, I remember the first time I flew across the country as a working adult and like I had to go to work the next day and someone was like, oh, you should just get like some Unisom and sleep during the flight. And you <laughs> find that thing at the airport, yeah. you know, and then you like disappear into some like nether space for two and a half fitful hours and you're miserable. And I'm like, boy, sleeping pills don't work. Then you hear about Michael Jackson who had surgical equipment put in his home and literally anesthetized himself every night for like $20,000 a pop just to sleep. And I'm like, he had too much money. Right. Like he had many problems, but he also had too much money. And it's just like, you understand the dating world and then you become a billionaire. And the next thing you know, you're on a sex jet with Ron Burkle doing things that you would never, ever see even in Westworld. Andy, that's a, and, that's a weird business flight you were on. Are you sure about that? <laughs> well, I took a Unisom. It's a problem. <laughs> and then, no, but the reason that, the reason I'm making these ridiculous, uh, these ridiculous uh, analogies is because there's an element of Barry where I'm like, well, everything's been on TV. So why don't we do a comedy, but also a murder show? And we'll just see what happens. Now, that's not the way they thought about it. But there's an element of extremity with what they're playing with and killing Eve as well to make us feel something emotionally because maybe we've been desensitized to it. Do you follow what I'm saying? I think that they both do the same thing. I I think that they both are playing on the audience expectations and also our expectations. I I think in some extent, I understand you're like, this is the age of not more but too much and that maybe we're like, we're cross-pollinating in a way that... you know, Dr. Ian Malcolm would be alarmed by if he if he heard about. <laughs> exactly. But exactly. I think that and I, we're going to I think we'll talk much more about Killing Eve um, on Thursday's show. I thought that both of these shows last night really, really played on. Audiences desire for no matter how terrible the people they're watching are and what they've done to people their desire mm-hmm. for those people to be relatable and there's the desire for the mm-hmm. th- for everything to work out for those people and i think that there was probably killing eve especially plays with this idea of the roles that sandra o oh and jody comer are supposed to be playing and the roles yeah. that they're supposed to be playing and they, that idea of this silence of the lambs heat kind of like two people inextricably drawn to each other because of their uh their mutual obsession with each other you know uh, and Barry, by that same token, is like, we want this to be a quirky hitman show. And we want all the people he kills to be bad so that we can still like him. And that show that show got shattered last night. That idea got shattered. I, I, think, I think that's a great point. And I think that's something that contemporary showrunners are grappling with and playing with. The, the built-in assumption from TV that we, well, actually from all film entertainment, that we want to like the people we're watching. Um, but it's particularly true on TV because we want to like them and invest in them and watch them week to week. So... Pushing, pushing that button and seeing how far we will go with people and what that costs the character and what that costs us is a really interesting thing. I, I guess I, I'm thrilling. I, I, find, I find the experimentation thrilling. And in the case of Killing Eve, I find it totally successful. And in Barry, I find it mostly successful and completely worthwhile and compelling. Um, I guess I'm using things that I like to just maybe just confirmation bias. But I, I want to I dig more into that. We'll talk more about Killing Eve on Thursday. Uh, We'll take a break to hear from our sponsors. Andy will be back with me live on Thursday. We'll talk about Killing Eve and some other stuff. We'll set out a watch list in case you guys need it. Until then, Andy, I will will see you soon. Thank you for putting up with me under these conditions, Bransky. I appreciate it. I'll see you. I'll, I'll be right up on that mic on Thursday, I promise. Later, dude. Today's episode of The Watch is brought to you by ExpressVPN. You guys know how wild it is online right now. It's become the wild, wild west out there. It's not, It's really, it is, if it hasn't already, it's time to start protecting your data. And you can do that with ExpressVPN, the world's leading VPN provider. ExpressVPN lets you privately and securely surf the internet without being tracked by anyone. No more worrying about being snooped on or having your personal data stolen. ExpressVPN runs seamlessly in the background of your desktop, laptop, smartphone, or tablet, and it keeps your activity and identity completely private by encrypting your data and masking your IP address. For less than $7 a month, you can get the same ExpressVPN protection that I have. It's easy, set up across all your devices, it only takes a few minutes, and every ExpressVPN plan is covered by a risk-free 30-day money-back guarantee. After you've experienced the freedom, privacy, and safety that ExpressVPN gives, you're never going to want to use the internet without it again. Take back your internet privacy today and find out how you can get three months free by going to expressvpn.com slash watch. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N.com slash watch for three months free. Don't put this off, guys. 
Protect your internet and data with ExpressVPN today. I gotta ask you because you're in LA you guys are playing a very strange residency to me like you're playing a series of shows in Los Angeles at this place called Gold Diggers right? Yeah yeah Have you played any of them yet? Last night was the first one So how do I only know it from it's on my drive home from work and I drive past it and it says like I guess it says exotic entertainment on the outside Yeah How did you guys come across this place and decide to play shows there? Um I mean, I think we provide some exotic entertainment in our own right. <laughs> I um, think so. But it's an old strip club. Yeah. Uh, not anymore. Yeah. But everything's uh, intact from those days. Yeah. Beautiful room. Everything's black and gold and sort of uh, has this kind of like cheap decadence. Yeah. Uh, to it. It's a beautiful room. It's kind of like an old, like a vestige of like old... Uh like kind of vice-filled LA, yeah. I, I mean, I, I, I actually didn't get a chance to to ask too much into the history yesterday, um, but I think it's been around for a long time. Yeah, it certainly so. looks it like they haven't changed the sign since the '70s or something like that. Yeah. Do you like playing it like sort of off non-traditional venues like that when you can? Yeah, I mean, I mean, it's 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 interesting when you get an opportunity to. To play something that that doesn't seem like a run of the mill sort of generic gig, you yeah, know? Um, and and try to to create sort of a more curated atmosphere that that's because like a lot of venues they they're so generic, yeah. you know. You you check your ticket at the door and um, there's the bar everything's yeah. yeah, and 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 the lights go blue red blue red <laughs> and then you know. Get the fuck out of here! Or something you know, it, it's it's a bit of a shame that that a lot of venues treat like the the gig as just something, just another it's gig. Part of, you know? It's part of like rather than rather than an, an, an evening. Yeah, an, yeah. Well, you know, it's funny because like you guys, like I remember when I was growing up. So I'm 40, and like when I started getting into punk, the coolest thing about it was going to see bands like Locust at some like weird, you know, like at like a at a, like an army, like a Salvation Army store or something in Boston, or like going to see bands in like these alternative venues, going to see them play play at house shows, and it's nice that like you guys can still actually get. I know that you guys probably grew up and you were playing like wherever you could play when you were growing up, right? And in, in Denmark, right? I would yeah, imagine. I mean, like when we started out, then uh, I mean nobody wanted to hear, so <laughs> we had to to do our own shows and each venue we managed to set up a gig and would ban us after that because <laughs> all our friends came and trashed, trashed the, the interior. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, that was a bit of a, a struggle, but, and, and yeah, had sort of a bad reputation. So, yeah. But, but, but we managed to, um, to sort of play places that would let us, yeah. even if they would only let us once. And then, um, Eventually, this this venue called Mayhem showed up and sort of took in our whole community and was sort of a a, a playing ground for for uh, us to rehearse and do non profit shows and yeah. and just for things to sort of flourish in the in our community. When you guys were first starting, what's that like? Two thousand ten, eleven. Our first seven inch came in 2009. Oh, 2009. Okay. <laughs> and so when you're doing that, and that's right when I feel like there was a kind of turning point with streaming music where people could start 
basically like you and I could sit here and we could just trade songs back and forth right now with my computer and say like, oh, have you heard this? Have you heard that? Have you heard this? Have you heard that? But you were still right on that edge where being a music fan took a lot of work, you know, and you had to go like, you would have to just have, have access to record stores and have places where you could find that music. Was that the case for you growing up? I mean, I'm, I'm sort of the last generation yeah. that can remember the world before the internet, yeah. which is kind of crazy. Like explain that to your grandkids at some point. I know right? they won't even know. Yeah. But, um, yeah, I mean, like, like we used, you know, illegal downloading too. Yeah. Even though, like, it was hard, harder to come across sort of more obscure things through that. But, and a lot of it was just like you found one thing you liked, you found whatever sort of thing you could read about that, wrote down the name of whatever acts were associated with that, and then just went down and ordered the records, yeah. waited two weeks for the import to come in, and then just hoping for the best, you yeah. know? And then you find out, like, when you get older, like, you're like, oh, there was, like, this gap. Like, if you were listening to, if you were listening to L.A. Punk, like, if you were listening to SST records from the 80s, you'd find out, like, oh, there were these bands that I missed because I was only, I only had access to, like, three or four of them. Yeah, I mean, like, I, I, I'm not that fetishistic around no. record collecting, but, I mean, I do remember when when finding a rare record sort of felt like you owned a relic of some sort. Oh, yeah. As, um and you treat them with such reverence, you know what I mean? You would have it, you have it in like your dust jacket, like in the plastic jacket or whatever. Oh, I was never that high no? maintenance. No. <laughs> I mean, it's, um, as you guys have been playing over the last few years, I'm kind of curious though how that tracks with how the sound of the band has changed. Um, I find that like, weirdly, like you're just such an easy band to love because you surprise with every record while still maintaining like a core kind of like attitude that the band has always had. Probably an easy band to hate as well. I suppose so, but not for not for me. Like okay, I feel like it's okay. just like every time you guys put out a record, I I have that same feeling that I had gr- like growing up with some of my favorite bands. I'm just like I'm so excited to hear what these guys do next. And as you guys have sort of developed, and I know that you sort of um, after you were were you like fair to say like a little burned out after the touring of the previous record? Yeah, I mean we had we had exhausted ourselves. Physically and mentally for for a long time. Yeah. Um, not that like we sort of put everything on hold and went into a fucking spa resort or something. You know, <laughs> like uh, the exhaustion perhaps never stopped. But but I mean maybe a, a creative exhaustion um, and like the the immediate idea for for the next record just wasn't there straight away and and we didn't want to force anything or. Sort of to to pay respect to to what our, our idea is about ourselves, mm-hmm. and, and and we wouldn't like want some like half-assed sort of release to be out there. So yeah, and, like we had we had to wait till like you get that sort of feeling deep down in your stomach where something starts brewing, and there's like a something that wants to get out that you can't stop. You know, what was that feeling this time around? Do you remember like I, I, I don't know I know just uh, ideas that that felt like they were leading us into some unknown territory that that felt like pushing into some unknown and and felt like a, a shift um, and I think that's that's really important to us to uh, to never create something without feeling like you're moving things things into something unknown or yeah. something that that's that's what hurrah. That's perhaps r- risking failure, you know. That's what hurrah sounds like. That sound that sounds like a a band that's almost like tearing away from something. Like the first track of the album feels like you're almost like ripping away from something or like casting out into something else. Right. Yeah. I really like the way that 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 song opens up the album. When you when you that, start- that was one of the first songs that were sort of a diving board onto the really the, the next material. Yeah. And was that was that the result? It's this like incredibly driving chaotic yet still melodic song and it was that do you remember was that like a product of you guys just like playing in a room for a while or was that something that was like very written out or i remember in the beginning like i just wanted to write a really dumb rock and roll record that 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 would take like a week to write or something yeah but then i mean you set out to do something and you get (laughs) overtaken by something else and there's always something that like, at least in me, if, if you have one idea, I know the idea will try and corrupt that first idea. So, so like there was like a, a sort of a fight to, to to struggle to try and write something really dumb, and then perhaps a natural inclination to to write something that's more intricate and yeah. and 
complicit. And that's where do you guys did more overdubs, more sort of elaborate instrumentation on this record than you feel like in the pre- previous times? Yeah. Yeah. And was that was the experience different? Did it feel as immediate recording it but beyondless? Yeah. I mean like like we we always try and create like a, a sense of stress and an intensity in the studio where nobody sort of can rest or allow second thoughts to get in the way. Like yeah. sort of everything just has to sort of spill out and you're always in time pressure and you don't really sleep and uh we we find like to to create an atmosphere that's sort of a delirium. Yeah. Uh it's it's a good place for us to manifest something on the tapes that that really is, has a sense of urgency to it. When you're doing that, does stuff get does it get tense between you and the band members? Like between like does is it is that like a pleasant experience or is it more of like a almost like volcanic kind of thing like a P- pleasant no but, <laughs> but but massively exciting yeah i yeah. mean like I, I love being in a studio it's 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 um my adult uh idea for a playground if the games were very very serious yeah. you know? um well you know what this means yeah. next though right you have to get rick rubin and you have to rent a house for like a year like the red hot chili peppers that's just like on the ocean you have to try the complete opposite <laughs> Yeah, I, I don't know about that. Man. You don't think that would work for you guys? <laughs> yeah, I was I was wondering like if 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 uh, that that record where you completely overdo the studio time and sort of lose it and end up with some sort of vague result. Uh, yeah, it's gonna come. But, but yeah, that's that's why we, we purposely sort of try and have too little time. Yeah. Do you ever watch those like the behind the music? documentaries and they they all like move into like a, either like a, a mansion or like you know like somebody's some old movie star's house and they build their own studio and that takes three months and then uh, like everybody's living there and stuff and it's just I think I saw something about like a, a snare for some Bruce Springsteen song I think maybe Douglas on the Edge of Town where they spent two weeks in a studio recording <laughs> that snare and I, I can't imagine that's its like own that. kind of delirium though right <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I don't think I don't think that's uh, how we work. <laughs> Is that how you respond to music ever, or you, do you get very like, um, do you notice little things like snares on "Darkness in the Edge of Town," or do you think you have like a much more primal emotional response to it? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm not um, I'm not that nerdy with that sort of stuff, but I, I think I have a pretty good sense of just taking it in without overthinking it. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, now again, you'll hear a snare that's like, damn. Yeah. But, um, I was wondering, you, know, you, you guys are here now. We're recording this in March. Uh, the record's coming out, obviously, in, in uh, early May, I think. But what's it like being in the States? I was, are, you, are you a fan? I, I can hear, obviously, there's like influences of American music in your guys' stuff. But I was curious about what it's like being here right now for you. Do you are you a fan of Los Angeles? Are you a fan of like, of like moving around in this country right now? I mean, parts of, of uh, Los Angeles is very alluring. Mm-hmm. Parts of just Los Angeles is massively off-putting. Um, <laughs> I mean, there, there's so much within this city. Um, yeah. yeah, I mean, like, of, of course, our, our music is massively informed by American music history. But we, we get that sort of, like, American label put on us to us. But, yeah, it's informed by country blues, sure. soul, all that, you know? But we don't want to, like, get into that comic book fucking uh, Route 66 uh, kind of simplified, you know. Like the Primal Scream record with the Confederate flag on it or whatever. I mean, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I I, I like America. I like pissy beer. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you came to the right place then if that's the case. Um, So yeah, I was just kind of curious about some of the the moments on this record where um, I was wondering whether or not we were talking about how how we grew up, like finding record, and you're not that fetishistic about it. But what what was some of the stuff that you were listening to before Beyondless? What was the, some of the stuff that put you in the in the mood that you you eventually found yourself in when you were writing this record and recording it? I really don't know. I mean, like, uh, there's not that much of a core. Does I'm, it? I mean, like, I mean, I'm, 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 my my listening habits is always extremely eclectic. Yeah, and then it'll be like all across the board, and and that's something we have in common in Ice Age. Everybody's constantly searching for like some uncharted part of musical history yeah. that, that we haven't found yet you know um 
Do you don't find it has a correspondence? Like, well, because like, you know, I, I work with writers. I'm a writer. But like when we're, you know, everybody's always joking around about like, oh, I was, I was writing this kind of thing. So I'm listening to Portishead or I'm writing this kind of thing. And I was listening to Hot Snakes or something. And Yeah. I mean, like, like there's, there's a million influences in yeah. there. And I, and I always try and have it remain sort of a mystery where it comes from. Like I, I try and eliminate that thought process that knows where I'm drawing a particular thing from uh, so it at least for me feels like a, a, a mystery you create something f- out of your whole cultural understanding you know yeah. everything I hear even if it's something I don't like makes its way in, in there <laughs> and sort of gets broken apart and then it's almost like some sort of black void where pieces of melody and words and images are just sort of flying in a tornado and yeah. gets broken apart and reattached in other ways and I don't I don't know which is what but do you um, spend a lot of time uh on the internet cuz I've been finding recently for myself that it's harder it's harder like to tune certain things out on the internet where it's like cuz it's such an overload of information but also like the stuff that I like gets jumbled up into the stuff that I don't like and I wind up like spending all day like kind of sifting through it. Do you do you do you or do you feel like it's mostly like? I mean, I had to succumb to being um, a Spotify member because our label <laughs> wanted us yeah. to make a, a playlist because that's what people do nowadays, I guess. And uh, I started like a playlist, and like, there was 150 songs yeah. on it. And then when it after the last song plays out, that fucking algorithm has to figure it out. <laughs> gotcha. so, I gotta so, look so, this up. Uh, this is on Spotify now. It's on, no, it's no, on. That's, it's a private playlist. Oh, okay, it's, um, not, it's not shared through the, the band's that's thing? A, that's a short band one, but like it had 150 songs okay. on it. Okay, so then And then algorithm. when it stopped, it would suggest other music, and I would actually find songs through that, and it annoyed me greatly. <laughs> that, that I mean, sometimes something that sounded awful to me would come up, and I'd be like, ha, okay. Yeah. And, but, but a lot of the time, like, oh, damn, they... The algorithm is pretty good. They have you figured out. Yeah, yeah. I don't like that. I don't like that. <laughs> you have to. You have to start giving out your Spotify password to other people. My because my wife has mine, so she's like, so like she'll listen to stuff when I'm not around, and then all of a sudden that messes up my algorithm, so it makes it much more unpredictable. <laughs> yeah, but who wins in the end? I don't know. <laughs> she does probably. All right, Elias. I don't want to keep you any longer, man. Thank you so much for coming by. All right, man. I love that Thank album. You. Uh, and uh, and have a great time at Gold Diggers. All right. Cheers. <laughs>